From New York City, welcome to the OpenFin MVP podcast. I'm your host, Mazi Dar. Sunny Day was a forestry, sustainable forestry business that we're looking at. And I was with the CEO of the company. And we were done, you know, doing a side visit. So we we're done. We had a picnic and we we're flying back to where we're staying. And sunny day, 2 p.m. in the afternoon in a village area in Rwanda, we got in the helicopter. The CEO was in front with the pilot that was behind him, and we took off. And let's just say I woke up in the hospital. That's Ori Adeyemi. He's the global head of strategic innovation investments at HSBC. Ori joins me to talk about his path to finance, what it means to get a strategic investment from a major bank, and he shares his thoughts on how we can all help to improve diversity and inclusion in finance and Silicon Valley. Hi, Ori. How are you? I'm good. Hi, Mazzy. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Where are you joining us from today? I'm joining you from uh, Palo Alto, California. It's supposed to be uh, warm here, but it's rather cold today. But uh, greetings from California. Terrific. Well, I'm in Manhattan. We're actually having a sunny day for a change. Uh-huh. Uh, so I guess we flipped that script. <laughs> so, Ori, I thought we'd start by digging a little bit into your background. And I was curious how you decided to go to MIT. You went for undergrad? Yes, I, I was there for undergrad, and, and I was fortunate that they took me back for graduate school a few years later as well. Nice. Well, that, that's always a good sign. I, I guess so. How did I decide to go to MIT was, uh, I think, time just worked in my favor. Just to give you some background, so I, I grew up in Nigeria and finished high school in Nigeria, started college in Nigeria, and uh, went through a period where Schools were being closed, professors were going on strike, and my parents just decided in order for me to get a degree before I hit the age of 40, I probably needed to leave the country. So the whole family moved, moved to the U.S., and we moved to uh, North Carolina. We've had ties to North Carolina for some time because my father went to graduate school in the late 60s there. So I got to North Carolina thinking I was going to go to UNC Chapel Hill. I'd applied just before I left Nigeria. I got in and I got the bill. And the bill, uh-huh. <laughs> I remember, was uh, going to be well well over $15,000 or 20000 I don't quite remember. That, that was real money back then. Yeah, a lot of money. The issue was that I wasn't a state resident. And my father said, well, we could find a way to put this money together or you could work for a year and then uh, defer your admission to UNC and go to Chapel Hill a year later. So I decided to defer for a year, and I worked in a restaurant as a prep chef to establish state residency. So a family friend had a restaurant, so I worked about 8 to 10 hours a a day for a whole year establishing state residency. And while doing that, I had more time. So I had more time to look at other schools as well. And I'd known about MIT, and I decided to apply, and I was fortunate to get in. And to my dad's disappointment, because he went to Chapel Hill and everyone else in my family, I decided to go to MIT and pay more than the uh, fifteen or $20,000 <laughs> a year. So anyway, I, I think I learned how to cook. That's that's the, really the lesson learned from that. I learned how to cook. Usually, Ori, the, the restaurant job is on the way to an acting career, not on the way to MIT, but but that is, that's definitely a different path. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I noticed you interned at Hewlett-Packard way back in 1997. Did you kind of have an interest in technology at that point that made you kind of head in that direction? 
Yes, I think you know MIT with the focus on technology. I mean, I, I thought I, I felt I needed to to have a solid background in, in technology, and the opportunity was presented to me to work at HP, and I went to far away Boise, Idaho, <laughs> in the printer laser printer division, and it was a fascinating period of my life, learning to spend time in the outdoors for one. It was working with a team that just had just got acquired by uh, Hewlett Packard. It was called the Advanced Technology Group at uh, Hewlett Packard. So you had this new R and D focused team that I could uh, like had the opportunity to work with on several interesting projects. Over, I think I spent probably every summer there for about three or four years working on coding firmware turning laser printers in and out and and you know playing with uh, a lot of interesting toys at that time. So it was a, it was a great experience and I loved uh, Boise. That's amazing. So so a, a kid from Nigeria ends up in Boise, Idaho by way of North Carolina and Massachusetts. I love it. Yeah. That that, that was my uh, sort of welcome to America. That's uh, awesome. Story. That's awesome. I noticed you also then spent a few years working at Booz Allen. What was that experience like? That was great. While I was at MIT, it started a company with a, a friend of mine, and but I decided to go to uh, into consulting, and and Booz Allen came recruiting at that time. It was a great experience for me, similar to my time at HP. This was a relatively new team. It was called Digital Strategies Team. So it was a new team that consulted within the public sector and some private sector clients as well around different verticals, healthcare, agriculture, on their digital strategies. So, you know, we talk digital now, but I think that was early 2000, 2001. And these were, you know, worked on interesting projects and how you could digitize and automate uh, processes, uh, you know, with different clients. So it was a great experience for me uh, working with an established team at Booz at that time. Was it after that experience that you went back to business school? Yes, yes. Uh, that, that was interesting. So I had a sense that I would always wanted to go back to business school. And something I probably should have mentioned to you earlier was while I was at MIT, I f- actually fell in love with the world of investing. So that's where I discovered the world of venture capital and private equity when I started a business with a friend. And I'd wanted to go into venture capital even before booze, uh, but that proved rather difficult. And the advice I got was, well, going to, you know, going to management consulting, get a solid foundation, learn the basics, and then maybe go back to business school. And then maybe you can think about getting to VC or private equity afterwards. So it was part of the plan. Out of curiosity, who gave you that advice? Uh, that's that's interesting. So the the person that gave me that advice, he's the uh, founder of uh, a VC fund, uh, or actually a private equity fund based out of London now, Helios uh, Topolawani. So I talked to him early on, early days, while I was a student uh, at MIT, and he was uh, a principal at TPG at that time. And he was someone that I could talk to. He was uh, he went to MIT and Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School, and he was someone that I could uh, uh, get advice from. He suggested that get a solid foundation, and then you know look into breaking into this world of investing. That's awesome. I always love hearing about how people made their way through their career and, and that kind of advice because it's amazing. Somebody will say something like that to you, and it will actually put you on a 
potentially different course in your career based on based on something they said. It sounds like that was good advice and it worked for you. So you, post-business school is when you actually ended up starting at HSBC. Is that right? Yes. And that was another, I ended up, the way I ended up at HSBC was another piece of advice. <laughs> and yeah. I, I had interned in Dubai and done some investment work, uh, summer of business school. It was an exciting time and you know, Dubai was a fascinating place to be. And I was thinking about going there full time. And uh, after talking to talking to a few other people, what I realized was that I needed to get a foundation in finance. I never wanted to be a banker, I'll tell you that. And I didn't think I was going to end up at a bank. But after you know, talking to a few people, they said, well, maybe you should look at a role in, in banking and maybe something a bit different. And HSBC just happened to interview or be interviewed for the first time at MIT Sloan that year. And frankly, I tell you, I thought it was the worst interview I'd ever done. <laughs> when you go through an interview, you, you you look at the interviewer and the body language, and the the person I interviewed me just didn't say anything, right? Uh, and didn't give me any indication if I was saying the right things. And he just stared at me and said, "Okay, we'll we'll, we'll get back to you." And that's uh, the worst. You know, yeah. So it was uh, very fascinating, and I did get an offer. Long story short, I got an offer. And then I got advice from another you know, senior banker at that time. I met him at an event and he asked me, okay, so what are you doing? I said, well, I'm graduating from MIT Sloan and I'm thinking of going to Dubai or you know, going to London to, you know, to join HSBC. And he didn't even go through any analysis. He just said, go to London, go to HSBC, don't go to Dubai. You could go to Dubai later on. Dubai may crash very soon. And this was 2006. And the interesting thing was I ended up going to HSBC. And guess who my first clients were at HSBC? The so folks in Dubai. Dubai. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so I got the best of both worlds being at HSBC. I got to work with the folks from Dubai. And I stayed uh, at HSBC. And again, it was another new initiative at HSBC, you know, in advisory, a new HSBC at that time was looking at a, a stretch of advisory investment banking. So they were just building at that time. So again, that was part of a building process uh, at HSBC. And that's how I ended up uh, going to banking as an M&A associate in 2006. You started in private equity before you got into venture. Is that do I have that yes. Right? Well, before I got into venture, I started in, in private equity, but at HSBC, I just started in M&A. So I did M&A okay. for a, a couple of years. And so if you remember, it's that I'd always wanted to do investing. So the right. plan that I had was, well, you do advisory corporate finance for two, three years. And then maybe if you make VP, then you move outside of where you are, move outside of HSBC and go do invest in, look for that opportunity. So that was the plan. And frankly, it was just having coffee with someone at HSBC, just one, just regular day having coffee and telling him about what I was interested in. He said, well, listen, I have this person that just joined HSBC and I think you should meet him. I go on to meet the, the person I was referred to 
and found out that he just joined HSBC and was part of this new team called Principal Investments. Hmm. And they were going to be doing private equity investments at HSBC, investing in, in Africa, in North America, in Europe, in parts of Asia as well. So what I've always wanted to do, I had the chance of doing it at HSBC, and I literally just moved from one floor to another at HSBC. And so that's how I got into private equity. So I had uh, a catch up with this gentleman, Edward Marlowe, and that was my boss in, in principal investments at that time. And that's how my journey of about five, six years in private equity started at HSBC. That's amazing. Principal investments was not the same thing as strategic investments. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. This was just you know, the principal investments team was, yes, it was from balance sheet. It was balance sheet investing, but it was your typical private equity deals alongside the traditional buyout firms like the KKR, TPG, doing deals with them, and also much larger ticket sizes. So we invested, ticket sizes could range from as little as $10 million to $75 million, and on a case-by-case basis, even more than that. So these were direct investments uh, across the board. I had the opportunity to you know, make investments in, in Africa as well. What were some of the things that you would have invested in at that time? Okay, an interesting company that we invested in, uh, it's actually an emerging markets uh, satellite telco uh, company called O3B. And O3B literally stands for other 3 billion people. (laughs) O3B. I love it. Yeah, other 3 billion people in the world that don't have internet access. The concept was using satellite technology for broadband communications. And this was conceived by a gentleman with, I think, ties to MIT as well at that time. And this was sort of venture, but large ticket a large ticket size transaction. It was a transaction of, you know, I think it was about over one point, over a billion dollars. And this had Google investing, uh, had uh, Liberty Global Media investing and HSBC also investing in uh, a few other PE shops as well. And so that was a, an exciting time. It worked. You know, we had our moments and this was, this was exited in 2016, if I remember correctly, to SES the largest satellite operator that bought the company. How did you decide to make the move then from the principal investments to strategic investments? So this was, I think, uh, around 2012, 2013. I'd gone through a life-changing experience in my life, and I was thinking, what was next? Well, can I, can I ask what that life-changing experience was? Well, sure. Um, it was, um, so I was involved in a helicopter crash. <laughs> Um, yes. While, and it wasn't, uh, a holiday trip. It was while I was doing due diligence on an investment Wow! all the way in Rwanda. I remember it clearly. Well, I don't remember the accident, but I remember sunny day. It was a forestry, sustainable forestry business that we're looking at. And I was with the CEO of the company and we we're done, you know, doing a side visit. So we we're done. We had a picnic and we we're flying back to where we're staying. And sunny day, 2 p.m. in the afternoon in a village area in Rwanda, we got in the helicopter. The CEO was in front with the pilot. I was behind him and we took off. And let's just say I woke up in the hospital and it was like that. Wow. Um, Yeah. Like my my whole body is tingling right now while you're 
telling the story. That was yeah. that, that was not the answer I was expecting. Yeah, so so it was as you can imagine, it was a life changing experience. And woke up in the hospital, found out I could move my feet, but I had to have surgery there. You know, in Rwanda, immediately there in Rwanda. And fortunately for me, there was a neurosurgeon in the hospital there that did the surgery, uh, the initial surgery. I was there for two weeks. Then I got flown to London. I stayed at the London clinic for about two months. I was on a bed for two months without my foot uh, touching the floor. Wow. I was out of work for uh, almost a year. Learn had to learn to walk again with the support and help of uh, a lot of people. That was a, a time of reflection and, and thinking through what next and what's the meaning of life, really, when you go through, right. through all that. So I consider myself very fortunate to even have that experience, really, because my perspective on life and what's important changed. And even the way my attitude towards work and people that I work with also changed at that time. So mm-hmm. it was around that time that I made the transition from private equity to venture capital. But the opportunity just, again, opened up at HSBC, and I was looking to do something different. And uh, I was able to join another team at HSBC to start a VCR. Wow. Well, that is an amazing story. Again, not the usual path to strategic investments. Um, (laughs) But help the audience understand what strategic investments are. I know, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, because, you know, we we have had a number of strategic investments at OpenFin, and a number of entrepreneurs will ask me about it. And it seems like an area that's, that's really misunderstood. Like, why would a bank make a strategic investment? What what qualifies as a strategic investment? What's a process in order to get a strategic investment? Who actually sponsors those? Can you just demystify that for people? Like, how does it all work? I feel, before I answer that, I feel, Mazzy, that both of us could write a book on that because I've been on that journey with you. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was a journey, uh, you know, uh, full disclosure, we're, we're investing in OpenFin and we, we literally went through that. It's a relationship. Strategic investment, it's a true partnership. It's a true relationship. What would a corporate or a bank look to make uh, a strategic investment? And I think not only you know, should we answer that question or do you have to think through that, but also why would a company take in uh, a strategic investment? So it's, it's a two-way street right. and, and both parties have to agree and see value in what that relationship uh, could bring. So in terms of strategic investments, I mean, there, there are different reasons why you, uh, you know, why corporate would, will look to do an, a strategic investment. It could be to gain insights into major innovation trends as you see uh, shifts happening in your specific uh, vertical, whether it's financial services and even going uh, deeper within financial services. It could be within payments, uh, digital payments. You know, it, it could be uh, as you look as well to catalyze, uh, you know, your early adoption of new technologies or new business models. So it's sort of that buy versus build debate that, you know, sometimes corporates go through. Mm-hmm. Yes, there is a solution out there. There's a technology out there that you probably, you know, you could build it, you could attempt to build it, but if the solution's out there and it's working well, why bother? If you can make a case uh, not to, you could go ahead and partner with someone uh, that already has a solution in place 
and through that partnership, decide to go ahead and invest equity as well. So I, I think it's more there is around, uh, you know, especially nowadays, uh, thinking around uh, innovation, accelerating innovation, and uh, a good way to do that is through strategic investments. Now, for a company, why would you take a strategic investment? It really depends on where you are at the stage of your development. If you feel that it's important to be closer to an industry partner, if you're looking for as a co-development uh, you're looking for a co-development opportunity as well, people that can give you insights. And you're looking beyond the vendor-customer relationship. I think there, there are just you know, significant learnings and significant dividends that such a relationship can yield. I'm a big fan of strategic relationships. I'm a big fan of corporate relationships. I've seen it work. But for it to work, you have to get it right. And how do you get it right? What, what makes it work? I think it's really defining what the expectations are from the yep. onset. And even though you define it, it doesn't always pan out the way you want it to. Right. But being able to to adjust and being able to recalibrate as well is very important on both sides. Yeah. And that goes back to the, you know, the subject of sponsorship, having someone or a group that is willing to be your champion. That's, that's the whole idea of having a sponsor, someone that can champion. Who ends up typically being a champion? Is it folks more from the technology side or is it more from business? What's the typical title of somebody who might be a sponsor? It varies. So at HSBC, ultimately the sponsorship goes all the way to our management team. So we have what we call the innovation board. And for every investment that we make, there's a member, a member of the innovation board, and this is the CXO level. All, all members of my innovation board are direct reports to our group CEO. The interesting thing is that they do give our investments uh, and, and potential partnerships a lot of attention, a lot of time as well. So ultimately, the no, there is sponsorship at that level, but I think from a day-to-day point of view, there needs to be someone very senior that may be a direct report to someone at the CXO level or at least close uh, to that that is involved in, in projects or involved in discussions with the startup or the early-stage company partnering with the corporate. That said, to, you, to your question of should it be technology or business? It, it, it depends. And it sounds like a political answer. It really depends. I mean, I've seen partnerships where it's been driven primarily through the business and others where it's been through the technology organization. The truth is both should be working together. Yes, you don't find that to be the case all the time, but both. And we've at HSBC, we're you now refining our strategy where we are working closely with the business, working closely with technology as well, and getting both sides involved in our investments to make sure and ensure that there are stakeholders on on both sides that will help with the success of uh, our partner or investee companies. Yeah, and do you guys typically co-invest with others? Are you are you leading rounds? Is it a mix of the two? It is a mix. It is a mix. Uh, and so have we led investments? Yes, we have led investments and we, we've followed as well. We're not, at HSBC, we're not overly sensitive to leading a particular round. 
I mean, the key thing for us is engagement, right? So whether it's a Series A, Series B company, it's really about how engaged we can be with that particular company. And if it's an area of expertise for us, we'll gladly lead the round. So to give you an example, this year we've led around in a payments company that's powering our digital payments e-wallet infrastructure in Asia. A couple of years ago, we led around in a company in the trade and receivable space as well. So it really varies. We're not sensitive to leading, and we like working with others as well. So even other banks. So we've co-invested with other banks. In fact, for me personally and members of the team, being able to come to the table and show us and give us examples of how you work in with other banks, all the financial institutions uh, is a big plus. And a bigger plus if you're able to go to, into other verticals as well, you will show breath. So that's something we get excited about. We're not sensitive to you working with HSBC alone. Uh, we, we like to see some breath in terms of partnerships and other stakeholders that come to the table for a particular startup. Yeah, and that's definitely the path that we've taken at OpenFin. And to echo what you were saying earlier, you know, it, it really is about the partnership and about really being on the same side of the table as your Absolutely. customer. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're coming in as a vendor to a bank, you know, you're sort of at arm's length and that sort of collaborative approach to, hey, you know, you've got a problem and, you know, we might be able to solve it, but we just need to understand it way better than we can at arm's length. I think that that dynamic does change meaningfully with a strategic investment which is why we're so excited to work with you guys and with a number of the other banks who, who invested in OpenFin. The possibilities through a strategic partnership is just, uh, I think it's unparalleled. And, and there were, you know, there were naysayers, I mean, a few years ago, and uh, there were naysayers that thought, well, it's not, I mean, what business do corporates have in the world of venture capital? Right. Uh, and there were you know, some debates around that time. But I think that mindset is it's changed quite a bit. There's an upward trend in terms of uh, the dollar amounts going into venture capital investments, especially now, whether you want to call it COVID or post-COVID times. Yeah. An advantage of having strategic investors is they're in for the long haul. That's a, a fact that you will tend to appreciate during these times where, yes, you know, technically I only have one LP. So there is a pressure to exit. Right. That said, though, something I think I should make clear to the audience is because you say it's strategic doesn't mean that you're looking to lose money. You're right. looking to make money. <laughs> important important call. Very, very, yeah. very important. Uh, I mean, in fact, the way I see it is it's a filter. So we, we talk, you go through the filters of why this is strategic for us in terms of the insights we can get in terms of being part of the product development with the company, working with the company on certain, certain strategic initiatives and the company helping us accelerate uh, innovation. That's a filter. But also, a filter is, well, how successful is this company going to be? We're looking for excellent returns, you know, sound financial returns as well. So that's, that's important. So it's the whole package that we bring to play. What are some of the themes that you're investing in right now? And is there anything in particular that you're very excited about? 
There's lots of things I'm excited about. So in terms of themes, traditionally at HSBC, you know, we when people talk to us, they think, okay, you're a fintech investor. I say, yes, we are a fintech investor, but there's this terminology I use as well. I say, we're a tech fin investor as well. So Yep. You know, because when people say fintech, they think just the traditional payments, capital markets, and that it ends at that. But for us, we, the way we look at it is we look at it through the lens of cybersecurity, KYC, uh, you know, platforms and things that help protect the bank. That's one theme for us. Another yeah. theme is around data and analytics. Uh, another theme for us is sort of open banking. So microservices, APIs, you know, how, you know, that's been driven by regulation. That's a big area for us. And another theme for us is uh, operational efficiency, making our processes simpler, faster, better. So those are the lens that we look at it. So it, it could be a payments play that is an efficiency play or a payments uh, company that is more of a, a data play. So those are the themes that resonate with us. And of course, uh, in terms of what am I excited about, I think the world's gone digital or uh, no, or we've accelerated a uh, digital agenda everywhere now. So things yep. around digital payments, I think I find very exciting. Things around onboarding, we're looking at a few companies there. Biometrics is a big thing as well. Hmm. And I think the, all the, the era of open banking, microservices, uh, APIs, I think this we're just barely scratching the surface. Those are areas I find exciting. And I think right now for us at HSBC, especially this year, even during COVID times, it's not so much of not having partnerships to explore, not having investments to do, but it's a matter of prioritization and deciding, right. okay, where should we really focus our attention? So it's exciting. And we're, we're excited about our partnership with OpenFin as it's uh, helping accelerate our digital agenda as well. Well, that's terrific. It's interesting to see how COVID has actually accelerated a lot of these areas and the need for digital transformation. It's really been a forcing function that has helped in, in some ways as much as COVID has caused a lot of damage in other places. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I, I think what it's done is it's it's focus. I mean, that that's sort of been the theme for lots of companies, yeah. I'm sure, uh, f- for you as well at OpenFin. It's really focus and not being able to ask the the difficult questions in terms of strategy, in terms of even the business model yep. for companies. And I think even if any advice I'll give to startups dealing with large corporates and during these times, it's don't be afraid to even think uh, about better terms for, for the corporates. And you, you have to take a long-term view. Yeah. And the same thing for the corporates as well. I mean, yes, prioritization is a key thing, but this is a time to really double down on certain investments. So on one hand, yes, everyone's cutting costs uh, in terms of people, but even at HSBC, uh, digital agenda, digital program is more important than ever during these times for us. Yeah. Well, that's great advice. So, Ori, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, and I know you've been, I've seen some stuff on Twitter that you've put out there around diversity and, you know, thinking both about diversity in fintech, but also Silicon Valley and, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of the investment world in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it and, you know, things that you think that we can all do to help improve diversity. Absolutely. This This is a topic very close to my heart. 
So in terms of diversity, in fintech and Silicon Valley in the world of investing, we still have a lot of work to do. And I say we, so in all sides. And, uh, and what I, I tell people, companies, whether it's uh, you know, venture capitalists, whether it's startups or um, large corporates, is in, in terms of diversity and inclusion, you have to be intentional. It's not a matter of just putting words out there of what will be good to do, but you have to have a plan. And something I've heard before around diversity and inclusion is diversity is all good, but it's about inclusion as well. And yeah. the way someone put it out there, which I love, I love you know saying this, is uh, diversity and the difference between diversity and inclusion is being invited to a party and inclusion is being asked to dance. So, so I, I think I like that's that. what it is. So it's it's not enough to be invited to the party because you could be in the party and just be in a corner, right? You know, you could be in the party and not have anything to eat. You could be in the party right. and not we, have a we, good we, time. We, we've all been there. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good feeling. Not 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 a good feeling. Uh, so it's that. So when we talk about diversity in, in you know and inclusion, that's what it's about. Uh, and there's so many things that come to make it a great party. You have to be intentional. And I think one way to start really is just being true to oneself, corporates, VCs, and really doing a proper assessment of where you are, where you stand, uh, and recognizing where the gaps are, and then facing them head on and establishing very specific goals and desired outcomes mm-hmm. and metrics around diversity. And that's what I mean by being intentional, yeah. having very clear programs. It's not enough for us to to talk about it. And, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, I've been here now. I moved from London three years ago, three and a half years ago in 2017. I'm, I'm one of a few, 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 uh, I know, black uh, investors here that needs to change. Um, do you, you find, know, and, do you find it's different in Silicon Valley than, than in London? I don't think it's any different. Uh, it's not no, not that London is more diverse than than here in terms of opportunities. I mean, there's just lots happening here. Mm-hmm. But in terms of diversity, I don't. I don't think it's any different, frankly. Yeah. No, that's my personal view. Yeah. Uh, so th- there's a lot of work to be done. I think accountability with you know clearly defined metrics is a, a way for folks to just really stay engaged. And there is this whole idea of the way diversity and inclusion works. I don't think it's something you do and you're done. Right. It's a dynamic process where you're getting feedback and you're just getting better at it and it becomes more natural. So I think I'm very optimistic about, you know, what could happen. There there are different organizations taking this head on here in, in Silicon Valley, like the Silicon Valley Leadership Group and a few others and uh, you know, working closely with them. And I'm excited about what the future holds. That's terrific. Ori, before we finish up here, I thought you could tell us about something you're doing outside of work that's interesting you and, and that you're spending some of your time on. Ah, I think I'm just driving my wife and my kids crazy, really. <laughs> <laughs> Not them driving me crazy. Um, so I, I do have four young ones. I have three girls and a, a boy, all oh, between wow. the ages of 10 and 2. So they keep me quite busy. And so what do I do? I spend a lot of time with them cooking. Uh, I love cooking. So I cook with them, especially my oldest uh, 10-year-old. Are you putting your 
the skills you learned in that Absolutely. restaurant way back when. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Mazzy, I'm not kidding. So I know, uh, I'm not kidding. I, I think I know probably about 60% of the recipes of that restaurant. Wow. All, uh, yeah. So it's lots of recipes that I remember offhand. You know, it's just, you know, you do things over and over again. So, yeah. So I do a lot of, so how do I spend my time w with the kids and, and, uh, you know, with, with family and, uh, family is important to me and that's it. And, uh, and just taking it uh, one day at a time. We're all doing that right now. That is a fantastic note to end on. Ore, thank you so much for joining us. Really enjoyed this talk and hearing about a bunch of stuff I did not know about you before. So really appreciate it. Thanks, Mazzy. I'd like to thank Ori for joining us and you for listening. John Siracusa is our show's producer. You can also hear John interview fintech founders and the VCs who fund them on the Bank On It podcast. Join us next time as we speak with innovators and thought leaders in finance and technology on the OpenFin MVP podcast. Mm -hmm.